been going through the book of Philippians. And so if you'd be so kind to turn over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves again this morning. I just wanted to uh, remind us where we've come from as we've gone through this, this second chapter. We've seen the humiliation of Christ even to the point of death on a cross. And we follow the steps down as God brought Christ down to the lowest part that He has ever been. Death on a cross. But then we went up the other side and we saw how God raised Him back up and uh, dealing with His resurrection and His ascension and His coronation as King. And also, He's the one who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And then we saw a couple different things in, in verses uh, 9 through 11. And uh, we looked at, first of all, the title, I believe, that, um, that God gave Jesus Christ. And the title was not the name Jesus, as some think, but it was the title Lord. Jesus was just a common name. There's a lot of people named Jesus, but God said He was going to give His risen Son a new name, and that new name was Lord. And we talked about how essential it is that if we're going to come to God through Christ, we have to come through His Lordship. That He's our Savior, but He also has to be our Lord. And we don't make Him Lord. He already is Lord. We just acknowledge Him as such and give and yield control over to Him. And we looked at other aspects of that. Um, and, and one of the, uh, the things there was the result that we ended on last week. There was a couple other points there in between. You can get the tape. But verse 11 says, and that, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And basically, part of that was the, the, the response to that worshiping Him. And sooner or later, as we sang this morning, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether by force or uh, by grace as we live now. If you haven't heard the message of Christ before, I encourage you to yield your heart to Him and ask Him to uh, transform you and, and forgive you of your sin. And uh, He'll do that as you come before Him humbly and acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord. And you can be, have a whole new start in your life. And part of that response to that is worship. But you notice at the end of verse 11, and we just touched on this last week, it says, to the glory of God the Father. See, that's why God did all this. You say, well, why did God humiliate His Son? Why did God have to exalt Him back up? Why did all this happen? It always happens for the glory of God the Father. Whenever God does anything, He always does it for His own glory. He never does it so we get the glory. And we have to remember that in our everyday lives. Now, as we come to verse 12, I want to read verses uh, 12 and 13 for us. And uh, I'm going to take a little bit of time to get through this because I want to lay some groundwork this morning because there's been a lot of uh, misunderstanding about these couple verses. And so let's just read those and, and uh, you can follow along in your Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Now, we like to go through books of the Bible here because we believe that the Bible is God's word. And I figured if, if we study his word, we really can't go wrong versus studying something I would come up with. So that's why we spend so much time in, in, in book studies. I just think it's a healthy way to study the text. It doesn't allow me to get on a little hobby horse and preach whatever I feel like that week. But I have to go back to the text, and you know where I'll be next week. I'll be in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. So, you know, this morning we're going to look at, at verse 12 a little bit. But, you know, one thing that, that haunts us a lot of times as believers, and even in, theologically, uh, sometimes we have, to, we have to stop. And now here he's obviously talking about our sanctification, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about, you know, our sanctification as believers. And you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, well, what is my role in this as a believer? What is my role in my own sanctification? And on the other side of it, what is God's role? And I want to kind of look at that question this morning. And, and sanctification means setting apart onto God. Is that something just God does and we don't play any role in it? Or do we have a part in that? Uh, so keep that in mind. Um, to put it another way, is it just me in this deal, or is it just God? Is it all God? Is it all me? Is it a mixture of the two? Is it faith? Is it effort? Is it trust? Is it obedience? And, and you know, th that, there's a tension there, because you know what? God does save us. The Bible says, you know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, there's none good. There's none that does anything good. None that seeks after God. All of sin. And so God does do that work in our heart. But I don't think we're called just to sit back passively and do nothing. And a lot of times when you teach certain doctrines like God's sovereignty or election or, or other certain things that are very biblical doctrines, people take those and they run with them and they say, oh, okay, well, if God's got it all worked out, I'm just going to go home and party. I'm just going to go home and sit on my hands as a Christian because what's his use? You know, we're like little robots. That's not a biblical view of theology. That's fatalism. That's not right. That's not what God wants us to do. And th this question isn't just here in this text. It's throughout Scripture. Uh, you, you stop and you think about it. You can ask the same question about your own salvation. When you were saved, was it you who responded to the gospel? Or was it God who drew you? Some of us would say, well, you know what, it's all God. Well, stop and think about that for a second. I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up one day and just say, Okay, God, I do whatever you want with me. I yield to you. No. God was working in my life. God wooed me. God, God worked in my life to a point where I was willing to come to him. So you had to turn from your sin in order to be saved. You weren't just laying in your bed one morning and, well, now I'm saved because God did everything. That's not how it works. You have to acknowledge your sin. You have to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to turn to Him. You have to place your faith in Him. If you look throughout Scripture, there's, there's, there's many calls for the, the sinner to turn to God, to repent of their ways. To believe, to commit themselves to Christ. You see that over and over and over again. And all of us were in that same situation. 
See, there was, a, there was a total change in our direction when we came to Christ. We had to turn from our sin and we had to turn to the cross. We had to turn to Christ. That was a change of our attitude. It was a change of our belief. I don't know about you, but I was raised in a certain church for 19 years of my life. And when I got saved, I didn't have much desire to stay in that church anymore because they hadn't taught me anything the first 19 years about salvation. I figured, why would I stay there? And then when I began to read the Bible and understand a little more about what they taught, it's not a, not a religion that really honored the name of Christ. So what did I do? I went to a church where they taught the Bible. That's what it, it always... It's under my skin sometimes. People say, oh yeah, I've come to Christ and you know they're in some false religion. Some religion that doesn't teach the Word. They teach the traditions of men or the traditions of the church. And they elevate men and all this other garbage that goes on. And they say, well, I just want to stay there. Why? Why would you want to stay in a place where you don't get fed? It doesn't honor Christ. Now, there's a lot of trappings that go along with that. You may like the smell of the incense and the stained windows and all the little statues around. But you know what? That's, that's pure paganism, beloved. That's not Christianity. And so you have to stop and you have to say, well, was it me when I got saved or was it God? There's a tension there. The same tension is there when we looked at Christ, when we were talking a little bit about His incarnation. You say, well, is, is Jesus man? Yes. But is he God? Yes. 100% of both. You say, that doesn't make sense. My brother, who's a mathematician, the one Bob that lives down in Marina, you know, whenever he hears somebody say, you know, yeah, that guy was just given 110%. Just drives him nuts. He goes, that's impossible. You can't give 110%. You can give 100%. But he goes, I hate that when people say more than that because there's no such thing. And you stop and you think about it. That's true. But you know what? When it comes to God, he was a hundred, Jesus, he was 100% God, 100% man. And you say, you know what? That doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. Well, you don't have to understand it. And it doesn't have to make sense. It's not important. It doesn't mean it's not true. See, God does some things that contain all truth, but we could never understand them. We could never comprehend them. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad that I serve a God that I don't perfectly comprehend in my own mind. Because what? That would make Him just like us. I, I'm glad I serve a God that you know, is way above our thoughts. He does things in ways that we could never fathom, we could never understand. You could look at the same thing when we look, read these words. You say, you know what? Is this the words of Paul the Apostle? Or are these the words of God? Well, they're both. I'm sure when Paul was penning this, he wasn't just sitting there on autopilot. Gee, why am I writing this? Oh, okay, God, you want me to do No. He, God was working through him. It was both Paul and God. Every word that Paul was expressing came from his heart in this letter. And yet every word that Paul was expressing was directly from the Holy Spirit. See the tension there? We see it throughout Scripture. And so whether you're talking about spiritual growth or sanctification, the same tension is there when we talk about this doctrine. That, okay, is this up to me? Or is this up to God? John Murray once said about a 
every major doctrine in the New Testament, there's some sort of paradox in it. In other words, when you look at it, you go, wow, that's weird, I don't get that. And it can't be resolved in the mind of man. And so we come to this matter of sanctification. Is it an either-or situation? Is it God or me? Do we have to take one or the other? Well, let's look at it because, you know what, there's people that come from different points of view on this. I grew up in Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, we have what they call Quakers. And Quakers are very simple people, very simple in their faith. One thing that a lot of Quakers believe in is a belief system called quietism. And it sounds it means just what it, what it uh, says. You say, oh, man, man, I wish my kids practiced that, you know. Well, that's what it means, that they were quiet. They were quiet. Uh, in other words, the believer was passive. The believer was always passive. You could almost call it spiritual pacifism. In other words, you get saved and what do you do? You don't do anything. You just let go and you let God. And, you know, one of their, their famous little sayings that they used to say was, I can't, but he can. And there's an element of truth in that. We understand that. So you have on one side the, the quietism kind of crowd that just says you get saved and you do nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's all God. We do nothing. But then on the other hand, you have people that, that are kind of given over to uh, pietism. And, and what, what, what pietism believes is, is they have to make a diligent effort for their own personal piety. And so with them, it's all effort. Very little God. And on the other side, you have the, 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 the quietism that's totally passive. Well, I don't think it's either or. I think that there's a biblical view to that. But I thought this morning I'd give you just a little bit of background on this because it's kind of interesting as I looked over this. And like I said, it was a belief system that uh, primarily was among the Quakers. And then it also became part of the, uh, a group called the Arminian Perfectionists. And you can just imagine what they believe just by their name. Um, they believe that you could actually come to a point in your post-conversion experience in your life, after you're saved, you would get to a point where you're so spiritual that you're perfect. And that you never, ever sin again. As a matter of fact, you're never even tempted to sin again. That's what they would believe. And the reason they believe that is because you were so surrendered to God. You were so passive in your walk. It was all God. And there's no way God could sin. And they believe that you could actually live a perfect life. And they believe that the work of sanctification involved no effort whatsoever except that of surrendering. After you surrendered, then it was all God. You didn't have to even do anything. Kind of a crazy belief system, but that's what they believed. Matter of fact, they even believed if you tried to do something, it would hinder God working in your life. So you can see that that's kind of an off-the-wall off the kind of a, a system, but people adhere to that even today. And so they believe that if you try to make any effort toward your own sanctification and you, 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 you work and discipline yourself in certain areas, they would say, well, you know what? That's putting you back on the throne of your life and you need to surrender and you need to come down and let God do all that and he'll take care of all that. And they say the proper role is to surrender to God and let Him give us the victory over sin. 
And, and their thinking is this, when we give our life to God, He moves in, He lives in us, He produces victory in every area. They had a, a hymn that went like this, Holiness by faith in Jesus, not by effort of my own. And the implication there is basically that the Christian chooses a life of faith and trust and says no to a life of effort and obedience as such. They, they don't connect us to it all. And one of the texts they use as a primary text to support their view is Galatians 2.20 that says, where Paul says, not I, but Christ. And they use that, just that little part of it. They don't go any further in the verse for obvious reasons. But they stop right there and they say, see, that was Paul's viewpoint. But you read on a little bit there and you see that in the context, Paul also says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, what? Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And so there is even that tension there in Paul's life. I live, yet Christ lives in me. Well, the quietness says, no, not I. I don't live at all, but Christ lives. And they try to eliminate any balance at all with that. There was one guy, Trumbull, who was very influential in that belief system. And he wrote, wrote this, and you can kind of see where this kind of leads. He says, the simple fact is that whenever a life that trusts Christ as Savior is completely surrendered to Christ as Master, which they see as that conversion I talked about, when they're perfect, Christ is then ready to take complete control of that life and at once to fill it with himself. When we surrender and trust completely, he goes on, we die to self and Christ can, can and does literally replace ourself with himself. He even goes on, he says, thus it is no longer we that live, but Christ lives in us as his person, literally fills our whole being with himself in an actual personal presence. And he does this not as a figure of speech, he says, but just as literally as we fill our clothes with ourselves. Well, if Christ was down here literally filling each and every one of us, it would be a problem with what the Bible says that we just went over a couple weeks ago. Where is Christ right now? The exalted Christ is where? in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So, you know, that, that's kind of a difficult thing. I understand what this individual is saying, but you have to be careful. What he's saying is you can literally come to a point in your life that you surrender so much that you and, and, and yourself and Christ, you, you kind of get rid of your own self so much that Christ becomes your new self. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's almost an incarnation kind of a thing he's talking about. He goes on to say, in this condition, a Christian does not even experience temptation. How many here experience temptation? According to this guy, none of us are saved. In this condition, a Christian never even experiences temptation for it is defeated by Christ before it has time to draw him into a fight. Hear what he said? Before it, because it is defeated by Christ before it is time to draw him into a fight. I wonder who he's talking about. If the him doesn't exist anymore, that's their belief that once you surrender so much, you don't even exist. It's all Christ. Well, this own individual, by his own saying here, says that, oh no, it, it, has, you know, it has to draw him into the fight, the temptation. Well, if there's no him there, how could that work? He's saying you just kind of die to yourself and... Uh, put your life on the altar, 
and you basically become a, a spiritual pacifist in your Christian walk and Christ just takes over and fills you up and lives through you and you don't have to do anything. Everything depends on Him. Now, if you're going to take it that far to say that a Christian doesn't even experience temptation because it's defeated by Christ before you're ever entered into that temptation, what happens when one of these individuals sins? Because I guarantee you they do. Who do they blame it on? They have to blame it on Christ. Because it couldn't be them because they're, they're not existing anymore. Kind of crazy. Whose fault is it when they sin? Well, you know, it couldn't be Christ because he's perfect. They have, a, they have a spiritual problem there. And that's the, the one side of, of this belief system. And what they say basically is, well, no, you took yourself off the altar. You de-surrendered yourself. You left the place of surrender by which you placed yourself in God's hands. See, but how could that even happen if he's doing everything? If I'm totally surrendered and God totally takes over my life, and, and my, I don't even yield to temptation anymore, that could never happen. So there's a flaw, obviously, in their thinking. And they've come up with a lot of different analogies to help support their belief system. One of them is a lady by the name of Hannah Smith. She wrote a book, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. A lot of different Christians have read that, and she gives this illustration. She says, what can be said about a man's part in, the great, in this great work, but that he must continually surrender and continually trust? But when, he, but when we come to God's side of the question, she writes, what is there they may not be, what is there that may not be said as if to manifold the wonderful ways in which he accomplishes the word entrusted to him? It is here that the growing comes in. And here's her analogy. Here's what she says. She says, the lump of clay could never grow into a beautiful vessel if it stayed in the clay pit for a thousand years. But when it was put in the hands of a skillful potter, it grows rapidly under his fashioning into a vessel he intends it to be. And in the same way, the soul abandoned to the working of the heavenly pot potter is made into a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meek for the master's use. Now you look at that and you say, well, what's wrong with that? We're, I understand that clay, you know, we've used that. And Well, their thinking is that you're the clay and the potter does absolutely everything. You don't even lift a finger. You don't have any disciplines, nothing. That's what they believe. And if you try to exude any effort toward your own sanctification, you're just getting in the way. And so you just jump up on the potter's wheel and you just sit there and he does whatever he wants with you. That's it. Very passive, spiritual uh, way to look at things. And you ask the lady, well, what happens when the believer sins? And she says this, when a believer sins, that means that believer took himself out of the hands of the heavenly potter. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a lump of clay jump off a potter's wheel. Seen a couple fly off because the thing's going too fast, but I've never seen it jump out of the potter's hands. You know, we had that pottery guy here. You know, he wasn't struggling trying to keep that, that clay on there, and as soon as he let it go, the thing jumped off. It didn't happen. Why? Because it doesn't have a, a thing of its own. Well, on one hand, she's saying that's true, that's what it is, but on the other hand, oh no, it jumps off the potter's wheel, it jumps out of his hands. So you can see kind of the breakdown in their, their thinking. That's kind of a special piece of clay, you might say. But 
That's the one side of it. Now, the other side of it is people who, who give in to this, this pietism, which basically they believe that it's, and there's a lot of good things in this, this belief system. But they put such a strong emphasis on Bible study and holy living and practical Christian, all these things, spiritual exercises. But they took the total opposite view of the quietists. And so from, from their point of view, it was almost everything you did. And if you didn't do anything, well, then there's no way you could ever, ever be saved. Uh, they basically said the Christians had to, got, had to be involved in, with all his faculties, ever, all his abilities, all his members in his mind, his heart and soul, in the matter of pursuing godliness. Now, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But you don't make that a condition of your salvation. It stressed a need for good works. It stressed a need for usefulness. It stressed the fact that if there was any belief that didn't lead to works, it wasn't a believing faith. It wasn't a saving belief. And to some of that degree, that's true. And they would look at a verse like 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And they say, you know what, that's our task. That's what we have to do. That's our duty every day. And for the most part, they were just as out of balance as the other side. An overemphasis on self-effort, you know what that does, basically. It, it, it makes your spiritual progress based on just that, what you're doing. It's based on your ability to dedicate yourself and to discipline yourself and to move yourself in the right direction. And when you do that, you're going to experience two things. One, when you succeed in doing that, all your self-effort, what are you going to experience? You're going to experience pride. Look at me. Look at what I do. I read my Bible for eight hours a day. I pray for six hours a day. I've witnessed to 350 people this past week. What have you done? That's what it leads to. Secondly, when you fall from that, when you fail, when you miss your devotion, what are you left with? You're left with despair. Because you think, man, you're not doing enough. And your whole salvation depends on that. So you can see these two views and how out of whack each one is. See, on the one hand, the quietest, when you sin, they basically blame it on God because he's in control. On the other hand, the other view, the pietists, they say, you know what, i got to do it all. And if I don't do it all, then I'm, I'm going to be miserable. Well, I really believe the Bible gives us a balance. And he gives us a balance uh, very, I think, very succinctly. Uh, turn over to First Kings, First Kings chapter 8. This isn't a new thing. This has been around for, for years. Um, but that's what Paul was trying to get at um, when he was writing there. He said, hey, you know what? Because on, on one hand, you stop and you look at those verses we just read in, in Philippians. Boy, you know, he says, for it's God that's work in you. Well, he's a quietist. No. On the other hand, he's saying, you know what? You need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so we want to look at that. What does that mean? Um, you say, work out your own salvation, and then for it's God that works in you. Well, why is that so? Uh, it looks like he's saying two different things. 
Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54. You have Solomon here, and his, it's, a, it's a prayer of dedication. And he's speaking to the people of Israel. And they dedicated this place that they built for worship of uh, God there, the temple. And uh, in verse 54, you start to see Solomon um, speaking to the people after he has finished his, his uh, prayer. First uh, Kings 8, uh, 54. So it was when Solomon had finished praying all his prayer, all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, that he arose from the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees, with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with you as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake, it, nor forsake us. Now look at verse 58. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. In other words, what he's saying here, if you're going to be obedient, who is going to have to make us obedient? God. He says, basically, I'm pleading with God to incline our hearts to himself. That's what he says. He's saying our, our, our ability to obey God is built on God's moving us in that direction. In other words, it's, it's a divine work. Look at verse 59. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our, our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Now look at verse 61. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Now, we're standing there that day and you're listening to Solomon and, and somebody uh, comes up to you afterwards. And you say, well, tell me about spiritual living. What's this all about? Tell me about holiness. How does it happen? Is it something that I do or is it something that God does? Well, you'd say yes and yes. Because, you know, basically, you pray there, oh God, incline our hearts to you. But then we exhort, you better wholly devote your heart toward God. And that's really the principle that we see back in Philippians. Um, Look over at First Peter or Second Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two, all the other, all the way to the other side of the Bible. Second Peter uh, chapter one, excuse me. Second Peter chapter one. Look at verse three. It says in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and are of Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 3 it says, as his divine power 
has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And you say, wow, this guy's definitely a quietist. You know, he says, everything related to life and godliness, God gives us. He gifts to us. His divine power does it all. Well, look at verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these promises you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You say, okay, it's all God. This is, this, Peter's definitely one of these guys. Look at verse 5. But also, for this very reason, giving all what? Diligence. He says, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And you see there, it's very clear what he's saying. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. Verse 10. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you now, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. What's he saying? He's saying, well, on one hand, yeah, it's God. But on the other hand, you better be diligent to do what God has called us to do. It's not just a passive role as these people teach. And it's not just all up to us as the other group teaches. And so that's why back in Philippians 2, when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what does he mean by that? You say, Bob, that's a long introduction. That is. That's why we're doing this in a couple of weeks. But I think it's important to lay the groundwork because there's people out there that believe things and say things that, that are not really aligning with what Scripture says. I don't think you can put this thing in a box and say, oh, it's all this or it's all that. Some people think this verse means that you have to work for your salvation. If you don't work, then you're not saved. Some people think it means that you have to, to work at your salvation. God saves you, but you better keep working because if you don't keep working, well, then He's not going to save you in the end. Some people even say that it means that you have to work up your salvation. But what's the problem with that? What does Scripture clearly say? Salvation is not by what? Works. You can't work it up. You can't work at it. And you can't work for it. Very simple. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved. Not of works. Very clear. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. 
Why did he do that? So we wouldn't boast. Romans 3, 21 and 24, very clear. The deeds of the law don't justify anybody, but righteousness comes by grace. You don't work for your salvation. There's no salvation by works. I was part of a church that believed, you know what, if you came to Mass every week and you went to the little box with the priest and gave him all your sins or whatever, confession, you know, that somehow you were earning points with God. Crazy. When you come to Scripture and what it says, it's not of work. See, he's not saying work for your salvation. He's not even saying work at your salvation or work up your salvation. What does it say clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12? It says, work out your salvation. That's what it says. It's present tense imperative. And basically it means it's a command that has continued emphasis over and over. You keep on continually making the effort. To work out your salvation. Not work on or work at or work up your salvation. Work out your salvation. As far as we understand, this verb means to bring something to fulfillment. To fullness or completion. To bring something uh, to completeness, you might say. And what he's saying here is the salvation that is in us, we're saved... It needs to be brought all the way out to its fulfillment in everyday practical living. It's really a command for us as believers to sustain that effort and that diligence to work out what has already been planted within us. There's an ancient scholar who was a Roman somewhere 60 years or so before Christ was even on the scene. And he wrote in Greek, and he had an account in one of his writings that, that basically uh, um, it's about some, some, some mines that are over there the Romans had in Spain. And it's secular, it's not a spiritual account at all. But he refers to the Romans as doing work, as working out of the mines. That's how he refers to him. And he uses this very same verb. And what he had in mind there was that the Romans owned the land that the mines were on. It was theirs. And what they were doing is they were taking out of that land the, the precious metals, whatever it was, silver, being mined out. And you know what? That's a good explanation of what this means. It doesn't mean you, you, you already have everything pertaining to your salvation. But he's saying, mine it out. So you, you can reap the benefits every day. We're to mine out of our lives what God has deposited there. That salvation. He saved us. So we could say that it's almost in our daily conduct that we're supposed to mine this out. God has put it, our salvation in our hearts. We're already saved. But He wants us to, 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 to every day go in there and mine out something else. Grow in Him more so that our sanctification would be clear to all. Holy living. Obedient living. That's what it is.
Now, there's a sense here in which we're making a great effort. I mean, we're called to be disciplined in our Christian walks. We're called to do what God calls us to do. And so when he says, work out your salvation, he's not saying this is a, you know, optional deal. This is not an optional deal, beloved. This is something that he commands us to do. That we're to work it out. That's a commitment. It's not some passive view that you just get saved and you sit there like a lump on a log and, you know, oh, God, make me into whatever he wants me to be, you know. Um, you know it doesn't work that way. It always kind of cracks me up. You know, sometimes within a church, especially a smaller church, there's things that need to be done. Sometimes you approach somebody and, hey, would you... You know, I have to pray about that. I always want to go, why? Why do you have to pray about that? This needs to be done. Hopefully, I think you're capable of doing it or I wouldn't have asked you. Why would you have to pray about it? You know, that's kind of the, the passive, well, you know, what you're saying is, I don't want to do it. I respect you a lot more to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. No, I don't want to do that. Thank you very much. But we got to make it spiritual. So we turn it around, well, let me pray about it. You know, go home and pray about it. Nothing to pray about. It's like saying, you know, you, you're, you're walking past lost people every day and you ask somebody, well, when's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? Well, I don't know. What do you mean? You know, well, when's the last time you witnessed to somebody? By the way, we have a great series going on Wednesday night, just a little commercial here. Little videos we're watching about sharing your faith and very practical. Uh, entertaining, good good stuff, biblical. And I encourage you to come out on Wednesdays if you want to learn more about that. But you ask people that and, well, you know, yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. You know, I ran into somebody the other day and, and kind of talked to him a little bit, but I just didn't feel God's leading. What do you mean you didn't feel God's leading? That person's dead in their sin and you're a, you're a, you're a saved believer and you have to have God lead you by the hand over there to share the good news of Christ with him? I don't think so. That should just naturally come. Now, you might say, well, my personality is not such. That's fine. Figure out a way that works for you. But don't give us excuses, oh, I didn't sense God's leading. Silly. But we do that all the time. But here, Paul is calling us to commitment. Over in Romans 6.19, Paul says, Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now... What? After you're saved, he says, continually present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, Romans 6.19. In other words, we have a responsibility to present all of our human faculties to the patterns of righteousness and the process of sanctification in our lives. We don't just flop down in the armchairs of grace and say, okay, God, do your work, I'm ready. No, there's an active pursuit. There's an aggressive pursuit. There's obedience that has to be done. And he calls us slaves of righteousness. That's where our hearts should be. We should long for that, to do what is right in God's eyes. There's a lot of different passages. We read 1 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's a call to us. Ephesians 4. Walk worthy of the calling which you were called. And he goes on and tells about that. Colossians 3. says that we have a new life. 
then we need to set aside all these things, wrath, anger, all these things. Don't lie to one another. Don't slander one another. We have a responsibility not to do that as believers. And see, there's, there's so many different commands in Scripture that puts the responsibility clearly on us. And don't get me wrong, we believe that salvation is by grace. And that's a wonderful thing. I thank God for that. If it was up to me in my own work, I would never be saved. None of us would be. But it's because of His grace that He saves us. But after He saves us, He doesn't save us to sit there like a lump of clay. He saves us to what? Do the work of the ministry. Whatever that ministry is, reaching out to your neighbors, reaching out to the kids in your neighborhood, whatever it might be. But God has a ministry for every one of us. Even in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says very clearly, see if this sounds passive to you. He says, do you not know that those who run in the race... All run. But he says, only one receives the prize. And what's he say? Just kind of run as you want. And, you know, if, you're, if God wants you to win, well, then he'll have you win. No, he doesn't say that, does he? At the end of that verse, he says, run in such a way that you may win. Discipline. Obedience. We were down uh, Friday. Uh, Mr. Sargus and I went down to San Francisco to watch the Blue Angels fly. And we were up at Coit Tower. And um, we're up there, and we're kind of waiting around, waiting around. We did a lot of waiting, actually, hours. But uh, they have these little planes down there. I guess they're called the Red, Red Bull planes or whatever. They had races going on. And they have these pylons in the bay down there that they blew up. They're filled with air. And these little planes go down, and they literally have to turn sideways to fly through these things. That's, that's how you know, close tolerance they are. And uh, they had this, this guy that was the flight controller for the air show, I guess. But he had a very, very, very... I thought it was a heavy Indian accent. None of the pilots could understand this guy. I don't know why they would choose somebody like this, because even some of the pilots were, were from other countries. And they would ask for clearance to come into this box, which is kind of cordoned off in the airspace, so nobody else is in there. And, and a couple of times, you know, the pilot would be saying, okay, is, is the box hot or is it, is it, is it clear to come in? And the, the, the poor gentleman would respond, and I couldn't even understand. And the pilots would go, Okay, do you want me to come in there or not? I mean, it was just crazy. And they, they just had this problem with them understanding each other. But as we watched these planes go around and round and round, at the end of their, their little race, and they raced against the clock, they didn't race against each other, the guy would come on and he'd say, okay, uh, number, number nine, uh, no penalties, one minute, 30 seconds. Okay, some other guys would be one minute, 40 seconds, five penalties. And they would either get a penalty or not. They'd get a penalty for flying too high, too fast, out of the coordinates of the box, whatever it was. But it's the same thing. They were diligent to try to keep that airplane going at very high speeds within the realms of the rules. And see, as believers, we're, we're supposed to use that same diligence. We're supposed to do what God calls us to do. And Paul goes on, he says, make that maximum effort to make that happen. It says, everyone who competes in the games, engages in athletics, exercises self-control in all things. And he uses the illustration. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's what you used to get when you'd win the race. They'd give you a, hang a wreath around your neck. But he says, therefore, I run in such a way without aim. Uh, not without aim. I, I box in such a way as I'm not just beating the air. 
In other words, I don't shadow box. I don't just run around in circles for the sake of doing that. He says, I make every effort to win. And in verse 27, he says, I pummel and I punch my body and I make it my slave. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of effort is going on to that, into that. Tremendous effort. Because it's a race. That's what we're involved in as believers. And sometimes I think we get saved and then we fall asleep. But we're, you know, the problem is we're still standing at the starting line. You know, we haven't finished the race yet, beloved. We're still in the midst of the race. Can you imagine if you went down here to the, the, the local high school and watched a track race and the gun went off and the fastest guy on the, the meet came out two steps and stopped and just stood there? I mean, that would be ridiculous. But sometimes, you know what, as believers, that's exactly what we do. Oh, I'm saved now, so I'm just going to kick back and relax and, you know, God, let God deal with the rest. Well, he said in the second epistle to Timothy, Timothy did, Paul said, I fought the what? The good fight. I finished the course. See, it's a battle. It's a race. It's a boxing match. All along the way, we wrestle. And it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of struggle. And I know what? You know what? A lot of you are going through that struggle right now. And I just want to let you know that God is there and He's perfectly capable of allowing you to, to finish this race. But you have to put forth some effort. He says in Philippians verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, not that I have already become perfect, Paul says this, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which also was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. He's pressing, he's moving, he says, he's running, he's fighting. And he says, you know what, I don't regard myself as already there. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's what our attitude should be. That's what our mentality should be. And we press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call that we have in God and Christ Jesus. Doesn't sound like a passive role to me. Sounds like there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of diligence being put into this thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so your progress may be evident to all. Chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. See, the first dimension of working out your salvation is to live on the outside what God has done on the inside. To pursue godliness and holiness and obedience in your life on the outside. Because that's what God has done on your inside. It's an accomplished work that God has done. And God is saying, allow that to flow out of your life so that other people can see it. The second thing that's involved in here, as we close, it really means to bring it to completion as well. When we work out our salvation, it's that we're pursuing the, the full and final expression of our salvation. Even that glorification when we meet Christ. He's saying, don't 
you know, this is something that has to flow out of us because God has already accomplished it. You think about it, salvation comes in three different dimensions. Past, present, and future. Those of us who are Christians have been saved. In other words, there's a moment in time when we were translated out of darkness into light. It's a fact. It's a done deal. That's what the Bible says. We left the kingdom of darkness and we came into the kingdom of God's dear Son, Jesus Christ. We went from death to life. We went from sin to righteousness. We went from being children of the devil, the Bible called us, to being children of God. We were saved. Our souls were saved. And we were made new creations in Christ. But you know what? There's also a sense in the present we're even being saved now. He's continually cleansing us from all of our sin. It just isn't a, a past act with no further implications implied, but it's an ongoing thing. So when we were saved, that was a point in time, but we're saved continually every day. That's why Christ is interceding for us. Keeping, that's the, the, the keeping power of Christ. And the future is, you know what? You will be saved. And that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for that full salvation. The Bible says even the redemption of our bodies. How many of you want your body redeemed? Oh man, I can't wait. Can you imagine having a brand new body? You know? No pain, no aches. I mean, just incredible. Romans 13 11 says, Now is your salvation nearer than when you believed. He's saying, you know what? The goal of, of being a Christian, you become more and more like Christ each and every day. And that's a, God, a work that God does in you, but it's also a work that we're called to be disciplined and, and be obedient to. I want to encourage you this morning that whatever it is, if you're just fed up with your spiritual life, if you're frustrated, if maybe you're caught up in some sin you just can't seem to get out of, I want to encourage you to turn to Christ. Turn to the Savior. Don't try to, you know, okay, well, I've got to read this book now and then I'll try to do this and have accountability, do all these things. Because so many times what we need to do is go before God and say, you know what? <laughs> I need help. I, I need a lot of help. Because, you know, we're all just wretched sinners saved by grace. And that should be the attitude of all of us. But it's only when we begin to feel a little pious about ourselves and we seem to almost to be able to, you know, kind of deal with everyday life without major spiritual hassles going on, then we begin to feel a little good about ourselves and then all of a sudden something slams us back down. And God just wants us to, to remember that we need to be reliant on Him, but He also calls us to be diligent to pursue a life of godliness. And that calls for self-effort. Just go before God and confess to Him and say, hey, you know what, I haven't been putting in the effort... <laughs> that's needed here. I've been a lazy Christian. That's what he wants to hear. And, and he'll change you. He'll give you the desire for ministry. He'll give you the desire for the lost, the passion to reach out to those who don't know the Savior. He'll even give you the desire to look at the priorities in your schedule and say, okay, where does church come in? You know, the one thing in our society that's really hindered us as a society is, is for Christians, the church used to be the hub of activity in the family's life. It, that's just the way it was. In other words, I mean, if you're doing something, man, you're probably at church doing it. Well, you know what? That's, it's, it's not that way anymore. 
Church has fallen down to the thing of it's just another thing during the week. You know, you go Sunday night, Sunday morning, and maybe Wednesday night, and you know, if you're real committed and you, you know, do some other ministries, you'll be here at some other time. But you know, don't ask me to do anything more than that. That's crazy, because I got other, I got other things in my life, and and that's our attitude. And you know what? We all have the same amount of time, beloved. And, and I understand that, you know, we don't ask you to be here 24-7 every day the, the doors are open. But God, God would be the doors would be open 24-7 in this place. And ministry would be happening 24-7 in this place. I mean, that's what it's about. That's what God calls us to do. And yeah, it takes some effort. It takes some sacrifice. But that's what we're called to do. So I want to encourage you this morning that if you're dealing with issues in your life, look to God. Look to Christ. He wants to affect that, that sanctification every day in your life and make you more like His Son. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before You this morning. We thank You for Your goodness to us. And Lord, we thank You for the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we know that our salvation is, is not by works. That's not what we're saying here this morning. But Lord, once we're saved... Because we're saved by grace. The Bible clearly says that. Uh, we have no place just to sit back and do nothing. Lord, you've called us as your people to uh, serve one another, to serve the body of Christ, uh, to reach out to those that are lost. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, spur in the hearts of us here this morning. Lord, that, uh, we're not doing enough. It's just that simple. We're not doing enough. And Lord, I know that you've spoken that to my own heart. And I pray that you would speak to each one's heart here this morning. And Lord, we're not the kind of church that tells you what to do or how to do it or when to do it. But Father, I pray that you would just make an impression on hearts here this morning for ministry, for, for people to raise up in different, different areas and be willing to be used, be willing to be pushed into that uncomfortable place and Lord, we've grown comfortable in our salvation. We've grown comfortable in our faith. And Lord, you don't want us to be in that place of uh, just complacency. But Lord, you want to do a new work in our hearts every day. Father, I pray today that if there's anybody here who's never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would quicken their heart to understand the gospel. Give them that, that, that repentance that you grant to those who don't know you that they would be willing to come before you, a holy God, and renounce their sins, turn from their sins and turn to you, and cry out to you and ask you to save them. Father, I pray that you do that this morning. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.